You can imagine in major areas, there is a list which the public cannot see, which you cannot see. Your name could be on a list that says true or untrue, you, you know, smoke cannabis. So in that case, in the Philippines, more likely you're using shabu. And therefore you're, you have a target on your back. Doesn't mean you're going to be killed, but you might be. And that, that's the daily reality for people in the Philippines. And that was disturbing enough to report on. But in some ways more disturbing, you know, was the idea that this is very, very popular. Very popular. listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. In its everyday use, the term war on drugs can feel like an abstraction. Lately, some politicians have called to end this war. They usually offer few specifics about what exactly that would entail. I'm Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. With me today is my co-host, Troy Farah from California's High Desert. Hello. Hey, Troy. So today on the show, we have author and journalist Anthony Lowenstein, who is uh, coming in from Jerusalem. His new book, Pills, Powder, and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs vividly captures what the drug war looks like around the world and why it's so hard to end it. For the latter, you need to look at who is profiting off of this forever war, what's being gained, and who benefits. In Lowenstein's new book, he takes a tour of six countries, visiting places in Africa, Australia, the U.S., and other stops, examining the various ways in which the war on drugs is waged, both in rhetoric and action. The book clearly identifies victims, villains, and profiteers of the global drug war and functions as a detailed compilation of drug policies around the world. The book is dedicated to the, quote, millions of drug war victims around the world who deserve a life of peace. Anthony, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, super uh, happy to have you on and congrats on this book. I think... um, you know, I we can definitely talk about the the places you went and, and the things you learned. And, you know, I think before we we get there, that there's a few, you know, really good, good quotes that that I pulled that I think gives uh, readers, you know, sort of where you're coming from. And so, you know, early on in the book, you write that quote. It's been a colossal waste of resources and money with more than $58 billion spent annually in the U.S. alone towards fighting a war that will never eradicate drugs from our societies. And yet it goes on year after year. And importantly, you know, what you write after that is that victory in the traditional sense is never really the point. And then you go on with that like amazing and ubiquitous uh, Nixon quote, you know, about how the war on drugs was always like a, a cover to uh, target, you know, hippies and minorities. And, and so, you know, from uh, the outset, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about like the, the war on drugs in, in its rhetorical form around the world. Cause I think we're very all familiar with, with the U S and its racist origins. Um, did you kind of see in, in, in Africa or Honduras or your 
homeland, Australia, that same kind of origin story, like the racism, the targeting of uh, minority communities? In a word, absolutely yes. I mean, the US in some extent is, is, is unique because of its size, because of the fact that there are so many people you guys put in prison, because of the incredibly aggressive local law enforcement attitudes towards people who take drugs, deal drugs, etc. But certainly in other Western countries, especially I spend time in the UK and Australia, there are similarities. You know, whereas in the US, you know, roughly 100 years ago, there was this created fear around Mexicans coming across the border and apparently seducing white women with marijuana. Um, in Australia, it was often the Chinese bringing opium uh, roughly the same time, a little bit earlier. And the same rhetoric, we have to protect white women. Um, and you read newspapers and magazines from back in the day, and it's remarkably similar to the US. At the time, I don't think the US was necessarily talking to Australia about sort of synchronizing these policies. And in the UK, it was also not dissimilar. It was also against minorities. So I think the drug war clearly started long before Nixon was in power in the 70s. And I think that although people associate that term with him and not incorrectly, this has been going on, right, for so much longer than that. I think what's different now is that increasingly, I think this so-called drug war is expanding. And although it's, and this is partly why I wrote the book, that I felt that for a lot of people, when you who aren't maybe that knowledgeable about this issue, they'll say, well, America is legalizing cannabis now and Uruguay's legalized pot. Hasn't Canada legalized cannabis? Isn't the drug war kind of coming to an end? And sure, there's violence in Mexico, which is awful, but really this drug war is coming to an end. And in fact, I mean, I thought this in some ways before I wrote the book, but the research around the world for the last five years confirmed this. The drug war, in fact, has never been more violent, more aggressive, and this is for a range of reasons. We can talk about not least huge demand for these drugs in many countries, but the people who are suffering most from it, not for a second minimising people suffering in the US, UK or Australia, um, often are people in countries of origin of the drugs or transit countries for the drugs, um, Honduras, West Africa and elsewhere. So, yeah, I'm really very much a believer that I wanted to challenge the concept of what a, a, a drug war means and to move it away, not just from the US, although acknowledging that the influence of the US globally, especially in the last 40 years on many other countries, is massive. And there's still no other country in the world that has as much influence as the US on global drug policy. But it is changing in the last five or 10 years. Yeah, that's great that you bring that up, that like there is this kind of, <sighs> attitude in the West that, oh, the drug war is over because the drugs that I like aren't so illegal anymore. You see that a lot with psychedelics, you know, but especially marijuana. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, it's almost like we're making progress in one direction, but make, like slipping far backwards in the other. We've got mandatory minimums making a comeback. People are being charged with homicide if their buddy overdoses and they sold them drugs. There's all kinds of stuff like this. Totally. And I think one of the the dangers of that very, the view that I think many, not just in America, I think it's in America, but other places too, is that in fact, as last year, FBI released some figures for arrests in 2018. This is in the US. And the rates of arrests around cannabis, in fact, is going up, not down, it's going up. And it's not only, but principally people of color and poor whites, not only, but principally. So although many US states are legalizing cannabis, 
I think it's inevitable that federally, maybe not with Donald Trump as president, but with a future president, federally, the US will legalize cannabis, but on a range of other drugs. And that touches on what we talked about at the beginning that, yes, some politicians now do talk about ending the drug war. Bernie Sanders is a good example, and some other Democratic presidential candidates for 2020, but they're principally talking about cannabis. No one's really coming out and saying, as I think they should, and many other people would now argue, that to end the war on cannabis is important, and I support that. But there are a lot of other issues that are going on here around heroin, around synthetics, around cocaine, a range of other drugs. And you can end a so-called war against one of them while maintaining or, in fact, worsening a, a war against others. And although cannabis clearly is the most um, commonly used drug after alcohol and tobacco, that's in most countries, a lot of other drugs, as listeners to this podcast will know, are very popular for a range of reasons, good and bad. And I worry that too much of the rhetoric in the US now, although it's huge progress from 2016, where no Democratic presidential candidate was seriously talking about ending a drug war, as limited as that definition is. We've come a long way in four years, but there's a hell of a long way to go. And I don't really see, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't really see a serious political debate with some exceptions. I know Andrew Yang actually has talked about a sort of Portugal model, um, not likely to be the Democratic candidate, but certainly at least talking about that, and I welcome that. But in general, the leading candidates, certainly Joe Biden is pretty um, regressive on drug policy. Bernie Sanders is much better. Elizabeth Warren's not amazing, but better. But again, they're talking mainly about cannabis. And that's important, but limited. Yeah. One thing that always sort of drives me crazy is that, you know, uh, so like you're talking about the, the, the these data and how the, 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 newest, the newest FBI data show that arrests for things like cannabis and, and certainly many other drugs are, are going up. But then when, when people start looking at prison data, uh, federal prisons or, you know, local jails, and, and when, they, when we start looking at the whole pie of, of jails and incarceration, people say, oh, well, there's so few people, you know, really arrested for, for cannabis and that the, the war on drugs role in mass incarceration is overstated. But just because someone's not serving time for for cannabis doesn't mean that they haven't been arrested for it and let off and maybe have fines or that their life is is upended in much more subtle ways than incarceration. And I think that's just one thing that I always want to point out here is just like just because the numbers don't show it doesn't mean that people's lives aren't still getting fucked up by it. I, it's like it's like the spreadsheet police who are like, look, the numbers aren't there. And it's like. Yeah. yeah, but talk to people, talk to black people. Like it's not over. Absolutely. And I talk about this in the book, you know, that the idea that there are a lot of people who aren't necessarily doing 20 years jail, but may get a criminal record for either a tiny amount of cannabis or, you know, being found with a joint. I mean, that's happening not just in, you know, tiny places in the US, it's happening still in mainstream New York, mostly the people of color. Let's, let's be frank. So yes, the fact that people aren't necessarily being put in jail, some are, let's face it, they definitely are. But a lot of people are getting, you know, a, a, a problematic arrest record and that can have, you know, huge effects on their life, on getting jobs, etc. cetera. Um, let alone, as we talked about, the, 
massive negative consequences of people being found with other drugs or even dealing small amounts of drugs, even just to friends. And I know you mentioned at the beginning, people can now be charged with homicide for providing drugs that might kill someone. So I do think if one looks back over the history, and I looked at this in the book, compared to say a decade or two ago, on the one hand, America has made huge progress. On the one hand, to some extent, at least the public rhetoric has sort of shifted not everywhere, and for sure, if you go on certain um, media outlets or certain politicians, particularly on the Republican side, but also the Democratic side too, not someone like a Bernie Sanders, but there are conservative Democrats. I mean, Joe Biden was recently asked about this very question about legalizing cannabis at the federal level and other questions, and he either kind of dodged the question. Oh, he he called for more research and and said like it's an open question and a debate about whether or not cannabis is a gateway drug. And before we legalize, we need a firm answer on this. And it's like that people have been saying cannabis is a gateway drug since since like the eighties. And it's like, are you saying that that over thirty years no one's been studying this and we don't know that like even that the concept of a gateway is like meaningless. It's like I wake up in the morning and take a shower. Uh, getting out of the bed is a gateway to a shower, which is a gateway to, to cereal, which is a gateway to lunch. It's just like, like, yeah, things in life are connected. That's just like not a useful framework for understanding how, how drugs It's work. interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think and someone like Biden almost is really, and not that I feel sorry for him, but he's kind of in a bind in a way because he knows that, a lot of the base of the Democratic Party has moved a lot on this issue in the last five or 10 years, whereas Biden himself was deeply complicit in drafting some of the most appallingly repressive um, drug law policies of the last 20, 30 years. So unless he does a massive 180, which so far he really hasn't, he's certainly not as maybe offensive about this as he was 20, 30 years ago. But if he becomes a Democratic candidate, which you'd have to say right now is possible, very possible. I find it a very deeply depressing thought, but I think it's very possible. Um, it's hard to see how the issue of drugs, drug reform, etc., will be top of the agenda for the, at least for him, uh, his campaign. I mean, the Trump administration is a bit of a, is schizophrenic on this. On the one hand, they've clearly ramped up law enforcement. A lot more people are being arrested for minor drug offences. They've hugely increased funding for various countries around the world that are supposedly fighting a so-called war on drugs, not least Colombia and elsewhere. But Trump's rhetoric hasn't always matched his reality. So although he did talk about, and Jeff Sessions, his first attorney general, talked about, you know, cracking down on cannabis users, cannabis dealers, legal, talking about, you know, in states that have legalized pot, it hasn't happened as much as some of us feared. I'm not minimizing people who are affected by the crackdown, but it's not you know, they're not sending in federal um, forces to people smoking legal joints in Colorado, which technically speaking, they can. Yeah, I mean, like, no, no dispensaries are being raided. And I think this is like, because like, I, I think the rhetoric on the right is very much like, you know, anti-drug and pro-drug war. But I think covertly, a lot of Republicans probably smoke weed. And like a lot of them actually sort of have flipped out about the uh, idea of like banning e-cigarettes and vaping and sort of that yeah. whole panic. And and Trump actually flopped on uh, or, or he flipped and then he flopped. I don't know. He flip flopped, I guess, on, on vaping yeah. because his base spoke out and were so mad about like banning flavors yeah. and banning e-cigs. So I think like 
even though I, I utterly abhor, you know, 90% of, of the rhetoric and, and the policies on that side, I think there is a, a base on the right that uh, is sort of like of somewhat of a libertarian bent where it's like, hey, I'm going to do drugs and don't fucking get in my way, which is sort of how they feel about everything. Uh, so like it, drugs are a really weird um, sort of political intersection to be to be talking about. And and I think like if we're talking about like the current sort of political landscape like that, that Kamala Harris's campaign tanked. Uh, I think speaks to just how uh, difficult it is for the old school tough on crime people to be running right now, because what's trendy is the progressive prosecutor. And what's trendy is to, um, you know, like be sort of quote unquote soft on on certain uh, nonviolent drug, like it has to be nonviolent, right? So like yeah. that, 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 that she couldn't spin herself as a progressive uh, prosecutor back when she was, you know, attorney general in, in, in California, like, I think speaks volumes about how far the democratic uh, electorate has moved on this. I think that's totally true. And one of the things that, in fact, does worry me, though, about where the US is going on, on cannabis legalization is the and this ties into what you were saying, Zach, about um, how many on the Republican side, putting aside the Democrats for a moment, have sort of seemingly embraced all of a sudden legal pot. That's true, and I agree with that, but I think it's also because they're very much at the heart hardcore capitalists. And someone like John Boehner, former, former Speaker of the House in your country, is on the board of one of the biggest cannabis companies around. Now, whether he's personally smoked pot, I have no idea, but he sees a business opportunity. And I think one of the dangers to me that I worry about in the US is, I mean, personally speaking, I don't feel overly comfortable and listeners might agree or disagree without this, but I, don't, I think that when you have a situation and most countries that are legalizing marijuana are doing this, Uruguay is a notable exception, that there are private companies whose main aim is clearly to make profit. I'm not saying everyone who runs a private company is an evil person, far from it. Some are, I'm sure, but most are just trying to make a living and that's fine. But when you have the profit motive there, I do think there can be an element of, of problematic policy and that inc increasingly will happen if we're talking about legalizing and regulating other drugs, whether it's everything or whether yeah. it's a gradual situation. So it does worry me that the US being the ultimate capitalist country in the world is going down a particular path, which also I might add in many states has, has excluded people of color who have criminal records. I know some states are trying to remove those um, previous criminal convictions and someone like Bernie Sanders has talked about that as being part of his policy that if people have been charged um, for cannabis offences those uh, will be lifted so allowing people to enter that industry if they want to and that's mostly people of colour and poor whites but yeah I, anyway personally I talk about this in the book in a way that the idea of the the private corporation I'm talking I guess more of the larger cannabis companies rather than you know some couple of people running a shop in Colorado, um, talking more about the big companies, their motive is not dissimilar, I would argue, to large firms that are selling other drugs. I'm talking about here about you know, tobacco or alcohol. I think just to be clear, cannabis should be legal and regulated. I don't think otherwise, but I do think that pri the, the, the private element of, of ownership can present problems, not least, I think, when it comes to public health questions. So. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I think 
what what I liked about your uh, uh, chapter on on Britain's politics and talking about labor, um, the 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 Labor Party and how they're yeah. how like how like drug policy on the left in Britain isn't like a, a huge sort of platform for someone like Corbyn. Like like it it's part of the platform, but doesn't take you know the top three spots or priorities. And 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 I think that's very much true. Uh, on the left in America, and I and I and I would like to see people on the left, uh, you know, actually lay out what an anti-capitalist legalization project might look like. And and I don't know if you have any uh, examples of what that looks like, or if you want to sketch out what a well, capitalism in California has kind of fucked over the recreational cannabis uh, situation. Right. Um, that I think that's a pretty good example. Um, they, you know, it's the highest taxes in the country. Uh, it's about 45%. And even though cannabis hasn't been legal for that long recreationally in California, um, the black market is still thriving. Um, and, and they're talking about raising the, uh, taxes again in January. So it's, you can't just. They, they, they kind of the California government kind of saw this as just like a cash cow to milk once they legalized it. And then it didn't really change very much in terms of prohibition or, or black markets. And that gives uh, prohibitionist ammo to be like, look, it, this doesn't work because <laughs> you still have a black market. Yeah, like California definitely did like the very capital L, capital D liberal Democrat uh, approach to legalization and i think it's probably like I, i'm not in california you're in california but from what i see that it's not really working out as planned i think they're falling way short of their projections in terms yes. of in terms of like what what kind of money they're pulling out of it and so i'm in illinois right now and january 2020 illinois goes legal and so i'll be very very curious what it looks like here because they we legislated into existence. It wasn't like a, a ballot measure. So like, actually, I feel very, uh, I felt proud at the moment, because like I was living in LA, when legalization was on the ballot, right. And like, I voted yes for it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, like, uh, we we legalized it. And then like, two, three years later, I'm like, Oh, this is a fucking disaster. <laughs> totally. I don't want to talk about the U.S. too much, though, because your book covers so much other parts of the globe. Let's go elsewhere. Yeah. So you're in Israel, actually. How did you end up there? And like, what is the uh, the climate like there? I mean, actually, speaking of cannabis, like they're really progressive on the medical marijuana front. Like you guys are doing a lot of research. They are Israel and Palestine is not in the actual book particularly. But you're right that um, the medical there's pretty wide access to medical marijuana here. The legal cannabis is not. Um, I mean, people obviously um, use cannabis, but it's recreationally speaking, it's not legal. And what's interesting, in fact, that the push for medicinal cannabis in the last years has partly come, not solely, but partly from very religious Jewish groups here who saw the benefits basically, like a lot of people do, for using medical marijuana for a range of issues, whether it's for kids or adults or whatever. Um, in terms of um, what's the, what Israel's also doing in the last years, as other countries are too, is increasingly doing studies on the use of psychedelic drugs to deal with trauma, PTSD, end-of-life issues and addictions, those kind of things, particularly ecstasy, 
um, mushrooms and LSD. And they're partnering often with universities in the US and the UK to do that kind of work. The Israelis love to candy flip. I know that for a fact. <laughs> yes, they do. I mean, it's weird. I mean, that's true, although where I am in Jerusalem, which is a much more conservative city, that's generally more people who live in, say, Tel Aviv, the so-called liberal heartland. But, um, yeah, in Jerusalem, it's less of that kind of vibe. But for sure, in Tel Aviv, it, in many areas, it is. Um, so, but in my home country, Australia, which also features in the book, um, the, there's a disconnect. I mean, we, Australia has per capita some of the highest drug use in the world. Um, drugs, of course, in Australia, I'm talking about cocaine and others, are so expensive compared to other countries because the drugs have to come a very long way, right? I mean, Australia is a long way away from, well, the countries where, that are producing, uh, for example, cocaine, it's a long, long way. So it's expensive, but per capita, Australians use a lot of drugs and it's always a question of why that is. And that's a different question, I guess. But Well, uh, one thing about Australia that I liked about, um, that I liked in your book, you, you talk about the media landscape and like, can you sort of talk about the role of the right-wing tabloids and like Rupert Murdoch's media empire and what kind of like ridiculous rhetoric and opinions come out of that and and actually you you have to take it seriously because it it has so much sway on public opinion well i'm sure some listeners will be aware but unfortunately rupert murdoch is an australian um he's an american citizen now but he's very much an australian creation which many of us don't like but there you go so his media empire um owns about 70 percent of the print press obviously print is dying but still very influential. So many of the major cities in Australia have one newspaper. It's owned by him. When it comes to drug coverage, with exceptions, for years, some of the key newspapers, the best way to describe it for an American audience would be kind of like a New York Post. Very tabloidy, often very racist, but in terms of drug policy or drug attitudes, I should say, draconian, um, usually going after people, you know, at parties taking drugs or very supporting law enforcement, locking people up. Um, there's been a huge problem in Australia in the last year. It's not that it's not, not unique to Australia of, you know, kids, young people, anyone going to music festivals and dying from bad ecstasy pills, you know? Um, and the Murdoch press has played a really key role in pressuring politicians. And some have not fallen for this, but sadly most have in not allowing legally, at least, at these festivals, pill testing. It obviously happens sometimes. It happens, you know, in corners. And there's been one state in actually territory in Australia that has done it legally. But in general, this is almost like a, an awful sense of deja vu that Australia, of course, has the reverse seasons to the US. So we're moving into the summer period now. Lots of music festivals like there are in the US in summer. And every year, for a number of years, lots and lots of young people are dying from taking bad ecstasy pills. And that's going to happen again this year. Why wouldn't it? Because nothing has changed. And the Murdoch press has played a really, really key role in not just pressuring politicians not to introduce pill testing, which seems like a no-brainer, but putting pressure on police, for example, in New South Wales, which is where Sydney is, the largest city in the country, to have a lot of sniffer dogs um, that go into music festivals, obviously with a police man or woman holding them and looking for young people with ecstasy pills. And what happens? Often people see the dogs, they freak out and they take 
two, three, four, five, six pills and they're dying. I'm not saying in the hundreds, but people are dying. And the idea that you have so-called serious journalists or commentators, it's not just the Murdoch press, but they have a really outsized influence in Australia as they, as they do, I might say, in the US and the UK. I mean, the US, it's principally Fox News. In the UK, it's a few newspapers and Sky News. Um, that they're kind of holding back not just progressive drug policy, but sensible drug policy. Now, I think in the end that influence is declining, but politicians, and I've spoken to many of them for the book, not just in um, Australia, but also in the UK, where drug policy is not that dissimilar. It's maybe on some areas a little bit more open to these kinds of ideas, but not hugely. The Murdoch Press has played a massive role, and the Daily Mail in the UK, which is not a Murdoch Press, but a very, very conservative newspaper, that has held back because politicians ultimately are scared. And that's not an excuse. I'm just saying that's what they will say if you speak right. to them. They don't want to come out and say, oh, yeah, we need on-site drug checking or we need more supervised injection sites or we need mm. prescribed heroin because they're afraid of the bite. Like what's going to happen when some, you know, uh, pea-brained columnist with 300,000 Twitter followers sends an army after you, you know? it's like For sure. But it's such a crazy disconnect, right? I mean, it really is never a time in modern history where there is a profound disconnect between what those sort of columnists and so-called journalists are saying and what politicians are saying and what the majority of people are doing who consume drugs. Um, that people are, and again, I think that this is not a bad thing, but flagrantly ignoring the law, taking drugs, buying drugs, consuming drugs, mostly without any problems whatsoever. And that's just a normal part of life for a lot of people now. And as I said, I've got no problem with that whatsoever. But I do think that there is a weird sense that the journalists and columnists who are against that, and it's sometimes said with the kind of a, some of the people I'm talking about, and I mentioned one particular person who listeners won't know of outside Australia, her name is Miranda Devine. She's kind of a very well-known conservative columnist. I'm trying to think the equivalent in the US, it'd be someone like a, She's very Catholic, um, very religious. I'm, I'm not sure who the equivalent would be there, a conservative Catholic. Oh, there, there's so many. Like at, at the Washington Post, there's like nine of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a Megan McArdle or something. Yes, totally. That's a good example. And I think there is a sense of kind of, as much as there's a lot of sound and fury, and she doesn't just write about drugs, but when she does, there's also, I think, she doesn't acknowledge this often, but acknowledgement that her views, society has passed her by. I mean, you can keep sort of railing, you know, by shaking your fist at the sky and saying, you know, just say no kids. I mean, literally we have still in Australia and it's not unique to Australia. I don't hear as much in the US and tell me if I'm wrong, but politicians, senior politicians saying basically kids don't take drugs. I mean, it is just farcical, which of course most people ignore, the ones who want to take drugs. But that's kind of still a semi-mainstream policy. It's weird in a way. I mean, Australia on some issues is very progressive. On some issues, Australia is not some awful conservative backwater on some issues. But on many issues, not, not least drug policy, we are, I don't know, kind of quite conservative, quite draconian. And I think Canada legalizing cannabis last year hasn't pushed Australia to do likewise, but I think it's inevitable within five or 10 years, Australia will. I think the UK is the same. 
Um, it's not going to happen next week, but it'll happen. But other drugs. Well, yeah. Next door, you got New Zealand. They're thinking about legalizing cannabis. They are. There's going to be a referendum in 2020. And I think actually the latest poll suggests that most people don't want it, but it's sort of 50-50. So let's see how that plays out. But yeah, I like. I have to say there's one side of me that doesn't mind the idea of having a referendum on this. I mean, some people would say, we elected these politicians to do it. Like, why do we have to vote on it? But I mean, it's not an unimportant change. And I guess if, I mean, it's, it's all going to be how effective the, the yes and no campaigns are and how much money they have behind them, right? And a lot of outside forces who don't want New Zealand to legalise, I know are coming into New Zealand, including from the US, and helping to fund the no campaign. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like Australia, the land of contradictions. <laughs> it is. It is very much a land of contradictions, um, yes. Moving moving um, away from Australia, so like I think one of the most horrific and urgent quote-unquote drug wars happening right now is the Philippines. And, and you write that, you know, like the like the war on drugs there is like literal, like the the, yes. the the rhetoric and the and the brutal violence really match up there. And so can you give a lay of the land of of Rodrigo Duterte's extra judicial killings and sort of just like what is happening in the Philippines and and also like why why don't a lot of people seem to recognize or care or you even call it a, like a genocide to me that's what it looks like yeah look what's happening there as you rightly say was brutal i was there um not that long ago and just to give a bit of a sense to listeners so duterte was elected in mid-2016 so about two and a half years ago he used to be the mayor of a large area of philippines called davao and davao city and he was known then as kind of this almost vigilante mayor. Um, he would fund, support vigilante groups to go around killing uh, gangsters he didn't like, um, drug users he didn't like, drug deals he didn't like. Of course, he was friends with those he did like. And that was very popular because people, which mirrors the popularity he has now in the Philippines as a, as a whole, people, I think, accepted the line of, and I'm using this, analogy of the sheriff who comes into town's going to clean up the place you know that that rhetoric has really not all people of course in the philippines but it's really resonated so in two and a half years no one knows the exact numbers of people that have been killed uh, but best estimates that i can find out and speaking to people on the ground is at least thirty thousand people and to be clear the vast vast majority of those people are poor people using a drug called Shabu, which is basically methamphetamine, which is the most popular drug there. Um, poor people living in often um, squalor in shanty towns. I've visited many of them in and around Manila. And this is, it's kind of a war that's being fought by police and the police has, have gone rogue or the police are paying vigilantes to essentially kill people with impunity. And I mean, the question often is, why is this happening? What is the stated goal? And I didn't meet Duterte, but I met people very close to him and they were very honest about it. Their view, I mean, I met, I met the key equivalent of the head of the DEA um, in Manila and he said to me with a straight face and I sort of had to ask him again if I'd heard it right because it sounded so fucking crazy. 
was our goal is by the time Duterte's term is over in 2022, Philippines will be drug free. Yeah, that's going to happen be- because you murdered everybody. <laughs> yeah. Now, you and, now we hear, hear that and think these people are nuts, but they have the power of the state behind them and they are not going to eradicate drug use in three years. Shock horror. But they're going to do a lot of damage in the process. And what's, I guess in some ways that's disturbing on its own. And I spent time there with families of victims. All of them were poor. All of them had either seen family members shot in front of them. Many of them had said to me that their brother, sister, wife, husband, whatever it was, had, was not a drug user. And even frankly, if they were a drug user, um, what the hell is, is it going to do to shoot them at often a point blank range? Right. I mean, isn't, isn't it the case that people are just standing outside and someone on a motorcycle comes up, shoots them and then scurries off? Like, isn't that how these oh, For sure. Go? I mean, I, you know, attended, I was there with a, a local journalist. I was with him for the time I was in the Philippines. And we, I mean, there's a weird thing where since the Tote came to power, journalists and photographers kind of congregate it's called like a night crawl where you kind of hang out and you sort of wait for a call to be told that there is a um, freshly killed human being uh, nearby who's been shot by God knows who, police or whatever. So we were hang out. I mean, he felt pretty morbid to kind of wait around for someone to die. But this is how, I guess, as a journalist or human rights worker, you view the carnage that the Tote is unleashed. So one night we get a call, we race to this area. It was about 20 minutes from where we were. A man had been shot dead very soon before we got there. He's, he was a guy who ran a scrap metal shop. Um, now, the obvious question is who he was, what he was doing, why he was killed. Literally impossible to find out. In the vast, vast majority of cases, this is, this, this is the case where People are shot dead for unknown reasons. Was there some dispute with a neighbour? Maybe. Was he targeted by a local um, vigilante or police? For sure. And in fact, one of the disturbing parts of this is that in neighbourhoods, the government has gathered information from community leaders of people they say are drug users. So you can imagine in major areas, there is a list which the public cannot see, which you cannot see, your name could be on a list that says true or untrue, you, you know, smoke cannabis. So in that case, in the Philippines, more likely you're using shabu and therefore you're, you have a target on your back. doesn't mean you're going to be killed, but you might be. And that, that's the daily reality for people in the Philippines. And that was disturbing enough to report on. But in some ways more disturbing, you know, was the idea that this is very, very popular, very popular. People, not all, but many, as I said, accept this idea that the Tote is going to come and clean up the streets. And you do meet some people who say, before he came to power, I couldn't walk down the street on an evening with my child and wife in a pram. Okay, I sure, that's obviously not good and you should have the right to do that, you know, have a nice family moment. But if it's more peaceful, so to speak, on your street, but two streets down the road, people are being massacred. That's not, I mean, that is just lunacy, right? Um, I mean, back to the idea that there's like a, a list and someone who may or may not use drugs is on, it's just like like the most fucked up form of McCarthyism like I've ever mm-hmm. heard of. And 
but but yeah like i i i think what what one thing it is hard for me to to fathom is that duterte has supporters and that his uh massacring of people like is popular and does have support and and when outsiders or human rights workers or other people the international community call him out he kind of just gives the middle finger and is like don't tell me how to run my country and the philippines has a long history of colonialism and and outside forces interfering in their uh in their you know government and so there there's like a a perfect context for him to give the middle finger to the international community and carry on doing this. Yeah, that's why I kind of want to ask, what kind of, do you feel any hope for the Philippines? When I think of like, kind of, I don't want to say a lost cause, but like very unlikely to see much progressive progress in the Philippines, that's what I think of. Look, in the short term, I think there's no hope. I mean, short term, I'm talking about the next couple of years. As I said, his term finishes in 2022. There was some midterm elections, so to speak, um, not that long ago. His support went up. Now, there are progressive forces in the Philippines. There are other political parties. There are human rights groups doing unbelievably valuable work. But there is, I think, a sense that the Philippines has kind of been captured by a sense of hysteria that the people that I, many of whom I met who were Duterte supporters, if you met them and had a chat with them, they didn't come across necessarily as crazy or radical or racist or that awful. Some of them, in fact, were lovely. But they, I think, had an ability, two things. One, to deny the fact that people were dying without good reason. In other words, well, if some people are dying, it's because they obviously were resisting arrest or they obviously had a gun and they're shooting at police. So what do they expect? Well, the evidence for that is just non-existent because in the vast majority of cases, police are either planting guns on the people they shoot or the mission is not to arrest people, it's to kill people, frankly. And the other, I think, area of this is that in the short term, there's no very well-organised political opposition that's likely to challenge him. Now, in the medium term, I think there is a possibility that, I mean, Duterte's time won't last forever. But he's in some ways actually, there's a lot of similarities between him and Trump. And what I, for two reasons. One, they're actually quite close. And as listeners might be aware, Trump has expressed a lot of support for Duterte and his drug war. I think in some ways Trump wishes he could do the same in the US, frankly. And secondly, there are children of Duterte who are keen to take power. They already hold office in other parts of the country, just like what's happening with Trump, that Ivanka or Eric or, um, What's the other amazing son? I forget his name now. Um, Don Jr., my boy. Don Jr., the great Don Jr., thank you. Um, Now, it might seem bizarre that they have any chance of winning office, but frankly, who the hell knows, right, in the next five or ten years in the U.S. So Duterte is not dissimilar. So I do think that what's more disturbing about the Philippines equally is that a lot of other states in Asia, which are already, with some exceptions, very repressive about drugs, seeing the Philippines as an example, as a model. So increasingly you see in parts of Indonesia and elsewhere, which again, we're already very repressive about drugs. Many people will be aware, listen to this podcast, that a lot of parts of Asia had the death penalty for um, drug dealing and other drug offences. Very, which, very which, harsh. Which Trump is like supported. He is 
like he's he's like he's like jealous that you can put people to death for dealing drugs yeah. and you can't do that here and he said that he said that about how he admires what, what the chinese are doing on that area absolutely so am i optimistic at all in the short term no in the longer term um i think that there is a, a real possibility of kind of a so-called backlash against that kind of extremism because there'll be a realization one hopes that this absurd goal of trying to eradicate drug use is a not as unrealistic but i would argue immoral um i mean it was weird just finally on this point that meeting a lot of people who are in treatment um i guess you'd call it sort of harm minimization but basically the government and the churches are putting money apart from the government killing people but also in sort of treatment so people worry that they have a you know a target on their back and they get treatment in the hope that they will there will be it'll be become known that they have stopped taking drugs and therefore they won't be killed i met a lot of these people and in treatment facilities around the country and many of them are very strong Duterte supporters now you sort of ask them well hang on a second this leader of your country could be the one who contributes to your death and i sort of sense that for some of the people and again you always have to wonder what they're telling a journalist. I'm a Westerner, I'm a foreigner. So who knows what they would say to a local. But putting that caveat aside, I did think that there was a sense that some people, in a weird kind of way, saw Duterte and his goal of a drug-free country as sort of, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if, as me as a drug user and I'm abusing drugs, wouldn't do that? Would, I would wish that I was free of drugs myself. And Duterte is just trying to do that for the, his people in the Philippines. Now, we, we all think that sounds delusional and immoral and absurd, but I sense that some users in treatment did think that. They didn't say that directly, but I sense that they saw him in a weird kind of way as the ideal, um, which is very scary. Yeah. I mean, that's like some serious internalizing oppression kind of shit which is like yeah. it's really hard to confront that and, and to counter that and um it happens in america too on a, on a slightly different scale where it's like jail saved my life and it's like buddy no it didn't <laughs> but yeah. like i don't know i it's 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 i mean th thanks for like going to the philippines and just being like a witness to this kind of horrific stuff like I've, I've been watching it from a distance with horror and i can't imagine yeah. seeing it thank you it was hard it was hard to see yeah. i can't imagine waiting around for a phone call that some random person for no fucking reason just got killed and what a helpless and like powerless feeling that must be I felt like a voyeur and I felt uncomfortable doing it. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I was there as a journalist and, you know, that's what yeah. journalists do. You can justify it a thousand ways. I don't think I did anything wrong. I didn't at all. But you do feel weird. I mean, it's just a weird yeah. sense. And there's some journalists who do it every night and done it every night for literally two and a half years. And that's people online, people can find if they haven't seen it. There are photographers who have, you know, won lots of awards for the amazing shots of um, capturing people just after they've been killed or family members who, who see their loved ones sort of cradling them on the streets. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah, we discussed the ethics of that kind of uh, photojournalism in a previous episode with, uh, what was his name, Zach? 
Oh, Nigel Brunson. He talked about yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, there can be problems with that. I, I, much, I didn't hear that, that one. I'll, I'll go back and listen to it. But um, there can be. I think it does possibly depend on the context and place in which the photos are taken, I, I, I would argue. But. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky line to navigate sometimes. Were there any interesting or surprising uh, places that you visited in the book? I mean, I think uh, Guinea-Bissau might be a good example. This is a really small uh, country in West Africa. But why is it kind of viewed as like a narco state? Yeah, Guinea-Bissau was definitely surprising. I, I mean, I read before I got there that it was seen in a narco state. I mean, what does that mean? Well, firstly, I'll explain where it's in West Africa. It's a tiny former Portuguese colony. It's been independent for roughly 45 years. And it's the vast bulk of cocaine going from South America to Europe goes either via Guinea-Bissau or the few countries neighbouring Guinea-Bissau. So essentially, it doesn't have the same level of crazy violence that you see in Mexico or Honduras, thankfully, but it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And it's what, what, what a narco state means, and I talk about this in the book, I question whether it actually is a narco state. The definition often is thrown around by many people as almost a, a term of abuse. I mean, clearly it's been used and abused as a country for many years by corrupt government and military officials to, uh, to be bought basically by South American drug cartels and used as a very effective transit country. That's just a statement of fact. That's true. But a narco state also, some of the broader definitions I think are problematic because it almost sort of says that um, this is a country that um, needs our help to be saved. Now, that's not the definition of the UN will give, of course, but too often I think when the term narco state is used, and these days if you look at the UN or others, they'll call states like Venezuela, Afghanistan, I mean, I'd say Colombia and maybe arguably Mexico. I mean, the definition officially is that all levers of the state, of the public service and others are, are corrupted by drug money, essentially. And there's elements of truth in that in Guinea-Bissau. But at the same time, it also suggests that or implies that it needs outside help to be saved. And there's no doubt that I think the country needs support for building up sustainable institutions, but Guinea-Bissau is a classic example of a country that no one really gives a shit about until it starts affecting us. Meaning that if there wasn't lots of cocaine going on the streets of um, Europe or the UK, and as listeners might be aware, the UK at the moment's going through a lot of issues with cocaine. The use is high, which is not particularly the problem. A lot of people dying from cocaine use and abuse and bad cocaine and that sort of stuff. So a lot of that cocaine is coming through Guinea-Bissau, not that most users in the UK will actually know that, um, that it's almost like the international community, which mostly means the Europe or the US, won't really give a shit about your country unless you uh, are causing problems for us. And when the support might come, it's only it's predominantly military support. So the DA, I talk about this in the book with Guinea-Bissau, I won't go into it in detail, but there's a big case the DEA was pushing in Guinea-Bissau years ago. They arrested in this crazy kind of elaborate Hollywood-style um, story the former head of the, of the Navy. He, went, he got sent to the US. He was on trial. He got four years prison. Then he was sent back to Guinea-Bissau. Now, 
you know, when DEA arrested this guy, he was said to be one of the great drug kingpins in South in uh, Africa. Not much evidence to back that up. Probably was a bit of a dodgy guy to be sure. But frankly, two things. One, what right does the US have to arrest some guy on the other side of the world and bring him back to America? Point one. And point two, there's not much evidence whatsoever that this guy going to the US, being in prison and then going back to Guinea-Bissau has had much, if any, impact on drug trafficking going through the country. I mean, just this year, there's been two of the biggest um, drug hauls in Guinea-Bissau in history. Well, one of them was worth billions and billions of dollars. Um, both of them combined were. And so that suggests there's a huge, not just, I mean, there's massive demand for cocaine in Europe and the UK. That's not exactly a secret. But I guess one of the things that was interesting about being there that surprised me, you asked me that before, was it's very different to a place like Honduras. Honduras, which I also went to for the book, is it's a scary place to be. Um, it's one of the most violent countries in the world outside traditional war zone. It is completely corrupted by uh, gang and drug violence. Um, I've rarely been to a place that was as as bleak in a way. I mean, not talking about geographically, but just in terms of there's a reason why so many of the migrants that try to come into the US, your country, are coming from Honduras because their country is essentially a failed state. Um, now, Guinea-Bissau... Right, and, and can you talk about the... America's role in in that failed state. Absolutely. It's like we have a huge footprint in Honduras and this is like a, a bipartisan thing. Democrats and Republicans, Absolutely. our quote-unquote foreign policy has been a disaster in Honduras. Well, I talk about that in the book. You're absolutely right. And just briefly, the best way to describe that is for, I mean, Honduras has been a US client state for a very long time. It used to be based around bananas and fruit that U.S. companies were growing in Honduras and then shipped back to the U.S. That's less the case today, but now, at least for the last roughly 35 years, Honduras has been sort of a key staging post for really interventionist U.S. foreign policy. So during the Cold War, the Reagan administration, and for that matter, the um, Carter administration, and frankly, most administrations, including Obama, were happy to use Honduras as a almost like a punching bag. They'd back completely corrupt leaders. There was a knowledge that huge amounts of particularly cocaine were going through Honduras. This was coming mostly from Colombia or Venezuela or Mexico, or actually onto Mexico. And this was not really a secret. In other words, the US was well aware of that. And in 2009, there was a coup backed by Hillary Clinton, who was then the state Secretary of State, backed by the Obama administration. The country was in bad shape before the coup, but since the coup, the rates of murder has just skyrocketed and the amount of cocaine that's going through the country has also skyrocketed, mostly into the US. And the role of the US in that is central because the US is funding and training the forces, talking about police, army and others, who are often complicit in these problems. So working, I talk about great detail in the book about particularly businessmen there, and WikiLeaks provided some amazing details about that a few years ago, of well-known Honduran businessmen who are known drug dealers. The US is providing and training forces that are working with these people to protect their both territory and goods. 
Now, this is not, I mean, and what do the Honduran people think about this? The ones who know about it are helpless. I mean, they, I mean, I said, I, you go around the country and there's a thing there called a war tax, which is not unique to Honduras, but I've never been to a country where it was so ubiquitous, which is basically anyone who wants to start a business, run a business, that could be anything from a shop to a street stall to driving a bus, whatever, has to pay a weekly tax to one gang or maybe two, three or four gangs. And if they don't, they literally will be killed. It's not even a question, let's have a negotiation. And that's why I've actually rarely been to a country where virtually everybody you meet is desperate to leave. And they're desperate to leave, not necessarily to get better jobs, that's part of it, because they're scared. Right. And then, and, then, and, then they show, and then they show up on our border and we kick them out. And it, it, was, it, it was Obama's State Department that supported an election and ousted a, a left-wing uh, government because they would not you know, abide by, they would, not, they would not be a client state. Yes, so, government. And so, totally, they were challenging that, absolutely. Yeah. And the legacy of that is clear to see. Yeah, it's, and I would not be surprised at all if, you know, documents come out in a year or so showing U.S. involvement in Bolivia. It sounds like the exact same thing happening there. And I think it's likely. Yeah, and there's also a lot of cocaine production in Bolivia. Like, I'm, all this stuff is super connected. Well, I think it wouldn't surprise me now with the recent coup in Bolivia that the policy of the former government, which obviously was to see the coca plant in a much more, in my view, mature, holistic way, those policies are overturned by a far more right-wing conservative government that A, hates the indigenous leader who did it years ago, Morales, but also because they want to get back in the good books with Donald Trump. And, you know, you know that the path towards that is two things in my experience. One, changing your drug laws to be more favorable to the US. And secondly, being closer to Israel. It might sound weird, but they're actually connected. So Bolivia, literally the week after the coup, tenure, uh, decided to reestablish contacts, diplomatic relations with Israel. That's usually a, a step, an example of a country that wants to be back in the good books with the US. Because uh, Morales 10 years ago cut ties after one of the Israeli massacres on Gaza. So, yeah, I mean, the US footprint, which is very ugly in much of South and Latin America towards the drug war is so vital. And what frustrates me so much with US media coverage about this, with some exceptions, is how often that's not talked about. So people say, oh, all these people are fleeing Honduras. It's very violent. Yeah, it's violent. Why is it violent? That, 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 that why question, right? It's like, yeah, it's violent. Okay. But why? Who's causing it? Like, what's the reason? That's so rarely talked about. And it's... Another thing that, that senior politicians in the US and US media does, they, they sort of scold, you know, uh, countries that produce drugs like Colombia or right now it's China and fentanyl. And they yeah. just like, you know, bully these countries to like get in line and solve, you know, your drug production problem. And they never look inward and think, well, why is there so much demand for these drugs in my country? Like they never take one minute to reflect on, wait, what can we be doing here to fix our demand problem? It's always let's look outside and let's bully, you know, China into regulating fentanyl. Let, let's bully uh, all the cocaine producing states in the global south. And it's never, ever 
uh, dawns on them that maybe as a politician in America, they can do something to bring down demand. Totally agree. And I mean, of course, as I say in the book, in multiple ways, in multiple places, the drug war is never about winning it. It's never about that because anyone who has any sense, even those who support it, know that you're not going to suddenly end drug use or drug abuse or drug dealing. I mean, as we know in the last few years, drug production in Colombia, cocaine production has never been, it's, it's the highest in history. And why is that? Because there's massive global demand, the US particularly, but elsewhere as well. And that'll continue unless, as you said, we look inward and say, why a lot of people want to use cocaine and what are the reasons and do we want to address that and do we think it's okay and do we think it's good and all those reasons. And should these drugs be legalized and regulated, which I talk about in the book, which is a no-brainer, I think they should be, but we are a long way away from that kind of policy. And I fear that if you get a Joe Biden presidency or for that matter, a second term of Trump, there is going to be a huge escalation, which is already happening, in places like Colombia to repeat the same mistakes of the past about trying to fight a drug war against cocoa production. When, as you say, there's a big demand for if it doesn't come from there, it's going to come from somewhere else, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil, whatever. Yeah. And, and I mean, to, 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 to sort of, you know, get, get to wrapping this up, like your last chapter is on solutions. And, you know, you talk about legalizing and regulating and, and Troy, uh, did you want to jump in and talk about that? Or did you have uh, other stuff to, to chime in about? Uh, no, I was just going to wrap up. Yeah, well, we I think we should wrap up on the on the solutions chapter. I mean, like, like you're saying, the if we stomp out production in Colombia, it's going to move, you know, somewhere else like like and and there's, uh, you know, from the outset, like you just said that, you know, this is unwinnable and no one expects to win, but so much energy and inertia is behind, like fighting it and fighting it and just causing so much destruction. I think that's true. I think I think the one reason I I had that chapter at the end was I've written a number of books and a lot of my work as a journalist, as all of us I'm sure will agree, can be pretty depressing and bleak because that's that's just the reality of these issues. Often, not always. We don't do too much optimism on Narcotica, but we try. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, noted. But I just felt that there was there had been a shift in the last five or ten years about the debates around the issue of legalization and regulation, not just cannabis, all drugs, the growing acceptance, not in all circles, but many circles, as I said before, in the use of psychedelic drugs, potentially for the use, you know, helping mental health issues, PTSD, et cetera. Um, and I think it is conceivable. I mean, I do talk in the book that it worries me that these, those kinds of psychedelic drugs are going to be very much available potentially to those who can afford it rather than, in other words, this, a lot of these, to me, access is often about class. We don't talk about class very much, but I think it's really important because I spoke to some of the leading experts in the world who think that we, for example, should be using, if people need it or want it, of course, not, not by force, um, psych, so psychedelic drugs to deal with various mental health problems. And I agree with that. But when you ask them, so how would that work practically? So you would go to a doctor and rather than them giving you maybe an antidepressant, um, they would maybe say, yeah, you should go to a, I don't know, psychedelic spa for a week, take these drugs under controlled environments and hopefully that'll help you. And it may well help those people. I'm not against that at all. 
But the concern is that the average person can't afford a fucking psychedelic spa, right? Hello. Um, and unless that's supported by the state, and of course the US health system is such a debacle, it's a bit better in Australia and the UK, to be sure. There is a public health system, which is... We can't even get insulin here. So if you think you're going to get a, 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 like a, a psilocybin weekend... <laughs> I know, totally. It just seems insane. I mean, unimaginable in the US, like, unless you've got money, for sure. I get that, which is, which is part of my point, right? That I think those sort of issues are important. And in my sense is that I worry... Although, again, I support these drugs being used more widely if they help people, and the evidence seems to suggest that they can, that we also think about how people will get access to them, that it can't be just those who can afford it, which is the minority of people. So, But overall, I think that there is a, a shift going on in the debate. Listeners, I'm sure this podcast will know that it's very conceivable that within five or so years, the use of MDMA in controlled environments um, for mental health problems could well be legal. The FDA is very much examining that. There's final stage trials about that at the moment. That's possible, um, which was unimaginable five or 10 years ago. Other drugs like that. So that's a positive development to be sure. But I do still worry that you're going to have sort of two tiers of drug use, those who can afford a so-called psychedelic spa and the majority of people who can't and those who can't are simply given the same old antidepressants, which can help people. I'm not someone who says they can't. They can help people. And if they do and they need them, that's totally fine. But for a lot of people, it doesn't work or it doesn't work well enough. And they should have the right through, in my view, a publicly funded healthcare system to get whatever assistance they need, which might not just be drugs. They're also going to be therapy and other systems. So, yeah, I'm a bit more optimistic about that kind of direction but i worry that a lot of people will be excluded and that's a problem right yeah i mean i think just like in terms of back to bringing down demand and thinking about who has access to drugs that that can potentially help them and moving to that system as opposed to the one now where people are using dangerous drugs that are killing them out of some kind of despair or something. It's like what this all points to is just building a better, healthier society. And drugs are a, a key component to helping people live there in that kind of world, but also like transforming themselves individually as well. Like this society that that's just healthier and happier it can coexist with drugs they don't have to be eradicated that's that's a good way to see it i completely agree and the evidence actually for that exists it's not like it's just sort of one's opinion i mean i think the evidence for that is clear not for everybody of course some people don't want or need drugs and that's totally of course fine and they're right but for a lot of people it can be invaluable and the evidence increasingly as more and more research is being done, particularly into the use of MDMA and LSD and mushrooms and other drugs like that to help people with a variety of issues. Or for that, I mean, there's a whole, you know, issue about microdosing these days. There's actually not much scientific evidence yet to back that up. I'm not suggesting it doesn't help people or, or, or you know, they don't get benefit from, maybe they do. Um, where that's going to be as much of a thing in five or 10 years, who knows? The, the millionaire engineers at, at Google are the the micro dosers, right? <laughs> totally. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there's optimism there, but I'm also cautious because frankly, why wouldn't you be? 
when it comes to this issue. Caution is important. We can't just end the war on drugs. We have to end the war on drugs right, um, especially okay. keeping in mind the people that have gotten the most damage from it. Absolutely. I agree. And reparations is vital to that, which we didn't touch on, but I mentioned in the book, and I think that's really key. Bernie Sanders talks about reparations, actually, to his credit, about the drug war, particularly with cannabis, but it's important. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, Anthony Lowenstein, the book is Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. Uh, it's out now, and you can uh, follow Anthony on anthonylowenstein.com. Yeah, and we'll have a links to the book and to some of the stuff we talked about here. Um, anything you, you want to plug, Anthony? No, I just want to say thanks very much for having me on. And if you yeah, have listeners want to get more, of course, they can get the book. But also, um, they can find me on all social media pretty easily. My name is, yeah, all the all the big platforms, I'm there. So, yeah, love to, love to join me. Yeah, thank, thanks for coming on. This was a really enlightening conversation. We, we'd like to get guests from outside the u.s it's i think uh the the perspectives on drugs are much more rational outside <laughs> often that's true thanks guys i appreciate it thank you for tuning in to another episode of narcotica this podcast was brought to you by troy farah christopher Maraf, and me zachary siegel our editor on today's show was aaron ferguson and our theme music is by glassboy if you like the show and you want us to stay ad-free and independent, then definitely hit up our Patreon at patreon.com narcotica. You can also give us a good rating on iTunes and leave us a nice review. And you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com narcocast. Thanks everyone out there for your support. Thanks for listening.